that time was a judge. He was, he was a, a judge, part of the Democratic machine and part-time leader of 12,000 workers. You know, it was pretty much of a big joke. So we cornered him after the meeting. We didn't speak up in the meeting. We cornered him afterwards in a room, you know. He said he would look into it, and nothing happened. We didn't get our penny. But we were able to write it up afterwards and say, you know, people went and talked to Maurice Perlin at the union meeting, and and that kind of put us on the map. This is Sam Smucker. I'm here with Jonathan Kassam and you're listening to the Smash Up Derby. This is part two of our interview with Terry Davis. We needed to raise money because we had to put out our little newsletter and we had to do different things. So we decided to have a fundraising party. And that was, that was another big step in our early years, which was we decided to have it on the west side in the black community. It was our job, me and Bob, to talk some, at least some, white workers to go to that party. And they were terrified. They thought their car was going to be dismantled. They thought they were going to be mugged. I mean, they were just terrified. They don't want to bring their wives. And we just made it just, it was our just our business to get some of them there. And we did get them there. And everybody had a great time and black and white and danced together and partied together. And it was a revelation to all. And it might not sound like much to people who have been around the labor movement where people are more prone to be mixing than in most settings, but it was huge for us. It was huge. So if we had had that party in a white neighborhood it wouldn't have been the same thing. It was so symbolic that the white people had to come and be hosted in the black community. What else was critical for organizing? So you talked about confronting um, confronting issues and solving problems. What kind of problems were you solving? Well, um, there was, well, this was after we had won a lot of, not a lot. We had won a significant number of steward elections. And then we had stewards that were already in office but had been kind of lying low that that came around because they wanted to be part of the action. And they had agreed to be steward for good reasons, but, but um, they had just been beaten down to think that they couldn't fight anything. But So we started having a lot of, gra- a lot of grievances, a lot of activity, but the chief steward was like, we, we used to say, his name was Sam, we used to say he was just sit all day in the lap of the personnel director, which wasn't literally true, but it just seemed that way, that he would just crawl up in the lap of the personnel director and kill all the grievances. And we realized that to really be able to do something with the grievance procedure, we had to have a chief steward that was going to fight the grievances. So... We started a plant-wide petition to get a chief steward, and you had to have 30%. We were doing that right in the teeth of layoffs. There was a big lot of layoffs. When was that? That was 70, 75, or 
I can't remember what year. So in spite of that, we got our 30%. We weren't able to get 50%, but we said, we're just going to file it anyway and see, just take our chances. And we won overwhelmingly. And now we had a chief steward and we had probably 10 stewards who were willing to fight How to one degree or another. How many stewards were there in the whole place? Um, probably twice that maybe, or maybe not, because like I said, we just had one steward for the whole second floor. It was crazy. There was, the company was very uncomfortable with what was going on. Very uncomfortable. Shortly after that, that I was elected steward and then we had negotiations. A lot of, a lot of things happened, but well, who, who was your? It was uh, Neil Burke. It was the white guy from the skill from the screw machines. Yeah, so he did a lot of work on a grievance that was to get a, a, a labor grade bump up for one of the jobs that a lot of people had, and the, that was the stock chasers, and they they were in labor grade nine, but they were, and they were mostly black, mostly men. They're all men, mostly black. They had to do a lot of different things. So he documented it all, and he made a real case. We were able to win that grievance, but the company was like, no, we're not going to go on and keep upgrading these jobs and let this union run rampant in the plant. And so then one day we came to work like every other day, and they fired, not fired, but they took the steward badges from Neil, the chief steward, and from six shop stewards, including me, and all the all the biggest fighters, they all all lost their we all lost our our steward jobs. And they could do that because the union fundamentally was under the control of the company, and they they put the um, worst snitches and low creeping insects in as stewards. I mean, they um, just threw it up in our faces and put people in that were just detested. And they were like, okay, ha ha, what are you going to do about this? It took us a while to regroup. They, you know, everything just went right to hell overnight. We had been working, we had gotten in touch with UE uh, along the line and we just started working up on longer-term strategy. We knew we had the support of the people, and we just had to figure out a way that we could uh, take over the union in the plant. And so the first thing we tried was to have our own local within the IBEW. So we petitioned the IBEW and got people together and went to the IBEW and said, let us have our own local. We have... Um, you know, a large bargaining unit, and we we want to have our own local. Chalied us along for a while and then finally said no, and that was it for the IBW. That was it. And then we started organizing to go independent. Was so that a hard was that a hard decision? Was it a hard conversation with people? Did we had we had taken this thing from steward elections? to chief steward election, 
to the limits that that could go without the company retaliating to mm-hmm. the IBEW. We didn't jump any steps and we didn't look for any shortcuts. We, and we were able, because we had a broad base of activists by that time throughout the departments, we were able to communicate this fight pretty, pretty well. People understood. So they, if we had just come like on day one and said, oh, let's have our own union, they would have said, who are you? But by that time, we said, you know, we can't do it with the IBW. They won't help us. So we were able to, you know, take it to the next step. So but that was that was one of our big lessons. There are no shortcuts. You, people have to see where they're going and they have to know who's trying to take them there and trust them and it just doesn't happen overnight. So to what extent did, up to this point, did the company, um, did they try to play the workers off each other? I mean, I understand they, they made this reaction. They had this reaction where they just clamped down and got rid of the steward system, where they got rid of, you know, the, the elected stewards. Were, were there other things that the company was doing to try to... Yeah, there, yeah, there were firings. They fired one of the two black guys that that helped us get things started. Mm-hmm. Um, they fired him for walking down the wrong aisle back from the coffee machine. It was not a very it was not a very strong case there. Wait, you didn't have a Starbucks in the plant? <laughs> not at that time. We did not. <laughs> so, so. Um, we got the the union agreed to arbitrate the case and they they made it a winner they knew that they had to do that that was that was midway along so he came back he had been sitting there at home for several months before he came back and it was sobering and then they fired another steward and we'll never know exactly what she was a very very popular person and she was fired for nothing but the company felt they had a better case on her and it we'll never know exactly what happened but something happened where she came back but then she wasn't steward anymore and then some of the people maybe some people had to promise that they were going to step back in order to get her rehired. I can't say what happened. It was all behind the scenes, but those firings really took a toll. They took people into management. They took several people into management, gave them, they promoted them, promoted them to be a boss. Yeah. And so, you know, there always had to be new people to come and fill the slots. They tried to fire me. I mean, they, uh, my supervisor came to the bathroom with me every day for, I don't know how long. She'd come in and I'd go into the toilet and she'd stand outside the stall and say, why are you taking so long? Why are you taking so long? What's wrong? Is there something wrong with your kidneys? And I had to put up with that without losing my temper for months. It was um, like psychological warfare. 
And it was also to make sure that I didn't talk to anybody. Right, right, because you could talk to people in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then finally we filed a labor board case against her. She had worked at Stuart Warner since she was a teenager, I think, and she, she, was, um, she had a big, loud voice and a brassy manner, and she scared people too. She scared people a lot. But um, So we filed a labor board charge against her, and then there was a hearing on it, and she had to go to the hearing. And she was so scared. She thought they were going to put her in jail. And the company didn't tell her anything about what to expect. They didn't, they didn't explain it to her or anything. And she had stuffed dollar bills into her blouse that she was going to use for bail money. <laughs> and, and, I mean, of course, she didn't go to jail, but she left me alone after that. <laughs> How long were you organizing before that reaction happened? Or, or did that all, did it happen as you moved towards um, changing unions? That was all before that. That was, that was before, um, um, that, that was, Charlotte was her name. She was the one that thought she was going to go to jail. And um, that was, I think when I was still steward. So that was before the changing unions. The changing unions stuff was, was by the time we got to that point, we, it, was, it was happening. Did you play a role in negotiations then? Um, when, when there was negotiations? Yeah. Were you able to elect uh, a bargaining committee, that kind of thing? Yeah, they had elections for the bargaining committee, but the way the bargaining committee worked was they elected 60 people, and then they were just like the audience. They didn't play any role. The bargaining committee didn't play any role. Just everybody would just sit there and watch Maurice Perlin perform. And this is this judge that didn't work in the plant or anything. Right, didn't work in any plant. No, he worked in the... He worked in the legal plant. He worked in the courthouse. So, so it was just a, 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 a ridiculous charade, negotiations. But, but yeah, we got... I was on the negotiating committee. I was elected to the negotiating committee right after I had been fired as steward. So I was back, you know, full-time on my assembly line job, and... In my department, I, I ran for negotiating committee, and then they had a black woman, um, a Puerto Rican woman, and then the white woman that they wanted to have uh, elected. So all the company people would vote for her, and then they figured that the uh, rest of us would be divided between Blacks would vote for black, Puerto Rican, and Mexican would vote for the Puerto Rican women, and nobody would vote for me. And then they put the ballots out, <laughs> and then they went around to each line and collected the ballots, but they somehow forgot our line. They didn't collect the ballots from our line. So my my group captain... I, she was afraid because she was sort of a little bit a part of the power structure, but she ran all the way across the whole plant 
with those ballads and said, hey, you forgot our ballads. Anyway, I was really proud of her for doing that. And, and I mean, I won because I had been the steward and people trusted me. So I got to be, for what it, whatever it mattered, I was on the negotiating committee. And just to clarify, so that company, did they put up all three of the other candidates? Was that the idea? Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, if you look in elections in the city of Chicago, you will see the very same strategy is in alderman races and everything. You'll see it. It's a a good old Chicago strategy, divide and conquer. Were there things that came out of negotiations that you all discovered? I know we had talked briefly about the pension plan. Well, Stuart Warner... Um, had been there for many decades. I forget how long, but it had been there for a long time. And they just basically milked that plant um, of every penny they could by paying cheap wages. And then they had this horrible pension plan, which nobody was in except for a very few people because you wound up paying more than you got basically. And I guess for the management people, they might have, it might have been better at the top levels, but most of the workers had no pension because they couldn't afford the payments into the pension plan. And we had, you know, very low wages. They were really low. Even for the skilled trades, they were a lot higher than, than um, other people, but for their skill level, they were low. And The machines in that plant that were held together by a scotch tape or something. I mean, they had people who just went around trying to put these old machines back together. They would break down all the time, and they two guys who did nothing but go around and fix broken machines all the time, all the time. They were just, they never replaced anything. It was just a cheapo outfit, you know, then when they had milked it completely, Completely dry, they closed it. But it was uh, it was a disgrace. They made a ton of money out of that place. Well, let's talk about the campaign to change unions. Yeah, no. Well, there was this fateful meeting when we had a meeting with the representative of the IBEW. And some of the really prestigious stewards got up and spoke and said, this is terrible. We've got to have our own local. And there, I mean, it might not sound like a lot of people, but I think there might've been 50 people at that meeting. And they were from, they were leadership people from all over the plant. And that was the kind of thing where, you know, the, the IBW rep really showed his ass. I mean, he, he's basically, no, we don't care about you. And the message was heard loud and clear. And then the people who had been organizing right along, everybody was in agreement. And we just said, we have to have our own union. And again, the number of people who signed up was not much over 30%. You know, the petition was filed with the labor board with far less than half of the people uh, having signed the petition. But as is the way of Stuart Warner, overwhelming majority voted for it. And I mean, that's 
that's just one of the oddities. Both of you with organizing experience know that that never happens. Mm-hmm. Right, that people aren't going to vote if they don't uh, if they don't uh-huh. sign the. You you get two thirds signed up and then a lot of that goes away before the vote, but not a Stuart Warner. People just knew how oppressed they were. You know, they just like, now give me a chance to vote secret ballot and boom, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And then, so then it was not UE though. It was an independent union. So you, you became an independent union, just an independent Stuart Warner workers union. Yeah. Now Bob and I left the plant and I think one of the main reasons that we did was that we didn't want to get elected into leadership. We wanted that to be people, you know, people from the plant, not Mm -hmm. us. And so we were not there for the next phase of the fight. But the next phase of the fight was people voting to go out on strike and they had a strike and it was successful and people stuck together and they came out with both feet on the ground and ready to roll and then they um there was a move to affiliate with ue and then the uaw which had played no role at all for the entire seven years showed up and tried to raid so never a dull moment it's Stuart warner but we could not, and I got to say this, we could not have won, and we could not have followed the whole the whole latter part of things after they after they got rid of the stewards and after the IBEW ditched us. Um, if we had not been working with the UE and working with Frank Rosen, who who just helped us to strategize, and he had tremendous wisdom. Frank was at that time the district president, I guess, by that point, the district president of UE. And and he had been helping us ever since we first went and talked to him, uh, which was probably 74, late 74, or something like that. And um, and he never he never wanted to put himself forward or or take any glory for it, but we could not have done it without him because he helped us strategize about how to set up the independent union, what we would need. And, um, you know, there's a lot of legal things and countless, countless ways he helped us. So I just want to give Frank, who just recently passed away, I want to give him another shout out for, for being an unsung hero during that time. And eventually then, um, the independent union then did come into the UE. Was that uh, that was also then a, a, an affiliation vote? So they had to go through another another vote. But then the the, I, uh, the UAW intervened. Yeah. So we had an election in which the independent union. Let's see how how did that work? No, the independent union had affiliated with UE. So we had UE on the ballot. UAW on the ballot, and then the IBAW only had to file one card, and they found somebody, <laughs> to, you know, and they they got on the ballot too. It was, uh, and then Bob and I came back and worked full time on that campaign, you know, until it was all over. On, on the, that's when you came on to UE staff. 
we were at that yeah we we had gone to work for UE and we we came back for that that was after the year of independent union mm -hmm. there was a year of independent union then the affiliation then the raid and then we came back for that election how did the UE campaign to say that it should be the the union well it was such an interesting campaign because the I mean, the UAW at that time had a lot of prestige and nobody had ever heard of UE because um, UE was small and not famous and and the UAW is like whoa you know high wages oh we'll join the UAW we'll have high wages and and um, things will be rosy that was before all the plant closings and givebacks and everything um, so um, the the UE campaign consisted of this. We were we were stuck in the IBEW and we had nobody to turn to and the UE came and helped us. They helped us train our stewards. They helped us with our grievance procedure. They did this, they did and the UE did. They they worked hard on support for negotiations, strike support, everything. The UAW was nowhere. The turning point, uh, and so a lot of people got it, and m more people got it as time went on. We just picked up steam as we went along. And at one point, all the stewards who had been elected, the newly elected stewards, who were UE stewards, they had been trained by the UE, and then here are these people coming in saying they're for the UAW, and they had, some of them had these big, expensive UAW jackets, and they'd sport them around and everything, and and the UE stewards said, look, if you want to vote for the uh, UAW, go ahead, but we're not going to be your stewards. You get some UAW people to handle your grievances. We believe in UE. And people looked around their department and it's like, who did they want to turn to? They wanted to turn to those stewards. And that was when we started to really consolidate our support. And... We wound up winning, but it was uh, that was a tough moment. Do you remember what the vote count was? Well, there was a runoff. It was that close, and that was because of the IBEW. <laughs> it was super close, and there were a few little votes for the IBEW. So then there was a runoff. So in the second election, it was much much broader support for UE, but I do not remember what the numbers were. I, I lived on cigarettes and coffee for like those two months. We'd come down there every morning. We'd come down like at 4.30 or 5 to start leafleting, and it was windy and cold, and it was poof. It was pretty crazy. Do you have any, um, any Frank Rosen stories you want to tell? Well, Frank was funny because, I mean, he was old enough to remember. I, yeah, he was old enough to remember when the UE got kicked out of there. He would have been a young man, but, but anyway, and he knew personally people who were among those stewards who had been locked out at lunchtime and not allowed back in the plant, and uh, so for him, it was kind of a personal thing. Um, and he said to me one time, I want this so bad my teeth hurt. And 
I, you know, I knew just what he meant. But he, I don't know if you guys remember, but UE used to have this at the UE Hall. There was this printing press. Did you? Well, Jonathan, you wouldn't. But Sam, did you ever see the big old offset printing press? Okay, that was gone by your day. But Frank ran off a lot of leaflets for us. He put on his old apron and set up that machine and crank them out. Well, let's talk about strategy and let's talk about the, the sort of the lessons. But what, what, yeah, what things are very that? different. Yeah, things are very different today. We don't have these big, big uh, factories anymore that people are mostly working in a very different work environment. And so um, I think the lessons um, ha would have to be taken and it reinterpreted, if you know what I mean, to fit the the present situation. But I think one of the things that that we actually learned, well, that I think served us well before we went in there, was to take lessons from the Black Power movement. Now, people today hear a lot about the Civil Rights Movement, but the Civil Rights Movement was followed up by the Black Power Movement in which um, white supporters of civil rights were politely or not politely told, you have to respect black leadership. You can't just come in here and be the great white hope and, and run the civil rights movement. And the, uh, uh, there was a lot of organizing uh, separately. A lot of white people had their feelings hurt, but what you could take out of that was that there, it was just absolutely essential to respect black leadership. And it was also essential to work really hard to bring other white people into the struggle in support of black leadership. So we had these sort of basic precepts that we learned from the movement before we went to work at Stuart Warner. And it really helped us to set the stage where we were able to really think through how we were going to do that because it was absolutely essential to getting off the ground at Stuart Warner. Uh, I think that that, that lesson is just as true today as it was then. You don't organize a bunch of white people and then invite black people to join you so that you'll be multiracial. You have to start in a different way. And so I think that I think that's huge. And I think the the race and nationality issues are just as big today as they were then. And it maybe feels a little different, but um I think we all have to work on that. And, and what, what kind of things were successful in getting white workers to support black leadership? Well, the thing about doing this in the workplace is that white people at Stuart Warner could clearly see that they couldn't get anywhere on their own. First of all, a lot of them were bought off and were company people and were, you know, bosses or close to bosses or had these little privileged jobs. And so the white workers that were actually workers, which was the majority of them, but they had to not identify with that sort of 
boss culture and they had to identify with the worker culture or they weren't going to get anywhere because the company wasn't going to give them anything. So, so that was objectively true. And it's like, if you want to get somewhere, we've got to unite, you know? So that was our message. In order to get for themselves. In in order to get for everybody. Yeah. It was the workers were going to get it together or they weren't going to get it. Individual workers could get, uh, you know, bought off, but, not the whole, not the whole group. So that's the thing about workplace organizing that makes unity objectively important. You know, why I was drawn to it and why I think, although it's probably more difficult today than it was then, um, why a lot of us need to put our imaginations to work on how, how to, uh, how to do it in this new economy. What, are there any other organizing lessons that you want to impart? There were, at Stuart Warner, there were a lot of young lefties who, who um, like us, who came out of, you know, one progressive campaign or organization or another and got hired on. And, uh, but a lot of them just felt that they had the answers to all questions and just try to get people to listen to them. And so they, they disliked us because um, they, Bob and I had a special place in hell for them because we had organized a movement and they were on the outside looking in. And if any of you are listening to this program, you know who you are. Anyway. <laughs> um, Not going to name <laughs> Um, but um, during this one contract we were getting absolutely shafted we had people's hopes had been up and then the stewards had been fired and and we were just not in any position to do anything we were still in the IBEW and there was no strike fund and there was no preparation and so a lot of these radical groups were saying we need to have a strike and we sat down in our in our little caucus, our our organizing committee, and we talked about it. We everybody wanted to have a strike, but we said we can't. We're not in a position to do it. We were vilified for for taking that position. The majority of people was not going to vote for a strike because workers kind of you kind of know that you're not ready when there's been no preparation and. People, we just weren't, it, it just wasn't, it wasn't a smart idea. But we were vilified for that. But but we always felt like we were being responsible to what would be best for the workers. And that, and then sure enough, after the, after they seized control of their own union, had their own union, the first thing they did was go out on strike. And that was successful because they were organized and they were together and had you know some some institutional support also from the UE. As far as I'm concerned, my years at Stuart Warner was the equivalent of getting a PhD. I've learned more from the people there and from our movement there than I have learned anywhere before or after. Thank you so much, Terry, for sharing all of those uh, stories. Um, well, thank you for listening to me. <laughs> It's fun to it's fun to think back. 
Thank, thank you, everyone out there for listening. Uh, this has been the Smash Up Podcast. And if you've got any uh, you know, questions or thoughts, uh, definitely go to our website at smashuppodcast.com and hit the ask or comment button. Or uh, we're on Twitter at Smash Up Podcast.